I think it was shared that my wife will be uh, speaking at the women's ministry event. Uh, one thing I can say about the transition of life from Africa to Perth, it's cold. Um, I'm still not getting used to it. Anyway, let me read from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says this, The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. These are some of the final words we have from the Apostle Paul. It's his last letter that we have recorded. Tradition says he was imprisoned by, uh, in Rome by the Emperor Nero. He was executed not long after. He was beheaded for his faith in Jesus. A few years earlier, he wrote similar words to Timothy, words we just heard. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that the Christian life is war. If you want to follow Jesus, then you must fight. Now, thankfully, most of us here have never had to endure the horror of war. When I was in, in Uganda, South Sudan, many of my students from Rwanda, Congo, uh, they've experienced the horror of war. Let's think for a moment, though, about the intensity of combat. Now, I'd love to show it here, but I can't. It's a church service. But, but think about the opening scenes from the film Saving Private Ryan. What I want to do, I want to, I want to narrate those scenes for you, but I want to dramatize it to kind of get you into the thick of the fight. So imagine, if you will, it's June 6, 1944. You're on a military transport heading toward Omaha Beach in Normandy. You're 18 years old, and you're scared as hell. And you're not alone. The fear in those around you is, is tangible. You watch as grown men begin to pray. Other men around you make the sign of the cross. For some, the tension's unbearable. The anxiety causes them to vomit. Suddenly, fear gives way, uh, gives way to chaos. There's like a series of explosions that rock the transport. And in the midst of this confusion, you hear the whistle blow. It's, it's time to go. The ramp at the, the front of the transport begins to descend, but as it does, bullets rip through those at the front. People close to you are hit, dead before they even get out of the boat. And with all this gunfire and bodies in the way, you can't go forward, and so over the side you go. But the water on the side is too deep, and your equipment's so heavy that you have to fight with every ounce of your strength just to reach the surface and draw breath. As the machine guns fire and, and, and continue, there's explosions around you. You see all this stuff raining down and somehow you're able to swim and make it to the shore. You're exhausted, half drowned, and finally, finally you catch a glimpse of the enemy. There they are right in front of you, no more than 50 meters away. And what you can see, there's a series of bunkers lining the, the small cliffs. And each one is home to a machine gun nest that is raining down fire. Between you and them lies barbed wire and landmines. And for you, the problem is you're in the open. You're exposed. They have the high ground. You've got to get off that beach. So far, all you've done is survived. If you're going to get off that beach alive, then you're going to have to fight. Now, this is not paintball. This is not laser tag. This is life and death. If you are going to get off that beach alive, then you are going to need to advance on those guns. And you are going to have to fight for every single step. 
You can go home and watch the film. You can see for yourself the intensity of these opening scenes. Now, maybe you're sitting here and thinking, well, Jamie, this is all a tad overdramatic. Physical combat and my spiritual life are two very different realities. Yes, yes, they are. And the consequences of one are far more serious than the consequences of the other. Let me underscore the seriousness of Paul's exhortation to his young protege. 1 Timothy begins and ends with these very same words. Look at chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Fight the good fight. If you don't, you may very well shipwreck your faith. Think about this metaphor. You begin the journey, but you run aground. You set sail, but you don't reach your destination. And Paul uses these very same words at the end of his letter in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. You know, I tell my theology students this. Where you see this type of repetition, know that the author is trying to get your attention. More so when they begin and end with the same thought. Life is war. Whether you understood it at the time or not, when you committed your life to follow Jesus, you entered a battle. So what's the fight? First, let me tell you what it's not. In 2006, when Claudia and I first came and, uh, to live in Australia, I was, I was working in a hardware, sh a hardware store that was not too far from where I grew up. And, and because of this, I would often run into people that I went to school with. One day, this guy comes into the shop. He, he recognizes me. We start talking. And then he says, so what have you been doing these past few years? And I thought, yes, an opportunity to share my faith. And so I tell him, I, I've just returned from serving as a missionary in Africa. Now, his response caught me by surprise. Wow, he says, that's really cool. Now, just so you know, that's not the normal response. God talk is normally a conversation killer. And so I'm thinking as we're talking, okay, the door is open to, to share about Jesus. And as the conversation's going on, I'm looking for an angle. And then he says, so did you, uh, did you kill anyone? And I'm like looking at him completely perplexed. And then he says, didn't you say that you were serving as a mercenary in Africa? <laughs> okay, missionary, mercenary. Fighting the good fight is not about reenacting the crusades. It's not a call to physical violence. So what is it then? This word fight used by Paul in the Greek, it's a word agonitsu. Now, the English word agonize is derived from this word. It means to strive or struggle deeply for something. It's used in the context of athletics and military conflicts. It basically involves giving all that you've got. And this word is used twice in chapter 6, verse 12. Let me, let me draw out the intensity of the original text. 
agonitsu the good agona. Now, it's probably not entirely correct to do so, but we can capture the sentiment by reading it like this. Agonize the good agony. That's the call when you follow Jesus. Do you get what this is saying? It's saying that the life of faith is not easy. If you don't want to end up a shipwreck, if you want to get off that beach alive, then you have to strive. You have to struggle. I remember when I first came to faith, I was 26. I was working at, uh, well, what was then Burswood Resort and Casino. And I remember a work colleague, a big, strong man. He, 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 he was not shy in pointing out to me that Christianity is a crutch used by weak people who cannot cope with life. Anyone else ever heard that? You're weak. You need a crutch to kind of get through life. Now, to a degree, it's true. I'm weak. I need Jesus in my life. Can I tell you this? Life was less of a struggle when I gave myself over to sin. Indulging the flesh comes naturally. But surrendering my life to Jesus, now that's a fight. The problem with being a living sacrifice is we don't want to be on that altar. Listen to these words of Jesus from Luke chapter 13 verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. Anyone care to guess what that first word is in the original Greek? It's the exact same word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy. The same word that we get agonized from. Jesus is saying, strive, struggle, fight to enter through the narrow door. Yes, we are weak and we need Jesus, but following Jesus is not for the weak. Do you get what I'm saying? Entering through the narrow door is a matter of life and death. The Apostle Peter, he picks up this same intensity when he urges us to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Life is war. And in combat, you need to do whatever it takes to survive. Let's listen once more to Jesus. Let's hear what he says in relation to surviving. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to be thrown into the eternal fire. Now, if you're young and you're hearing this probably for the first time, let me add a caveat. Please don't take this literally. It's rumored that the church father Origen castrated himself in response to these verses. Okay? This is what poetry calls hyperbole. Jesus deliberately uses exaggerated, powerful language to underscore the seriousness of sin and the effort that we must overtake to defeat it. On July 20, 1993, a man named Donald Wyman. He was clearing land in Pennsylvania uh, as part of his job for a mining company. Now, in the process, a, a tree, a, a huge tree, it rolled onto his leg, and, and it hit with such force that it completely uh, ripped in half. It, it, it just basically snapped his shin. And, and as a result, he was left pinned on the ground. And so here he is. He's like for over an hour, he's crying out for help. No one came. 
He's alone, he's isolated. Now, young people, this may be hard to imagine, but this is a time prior to mobile phones. If this guy doesn't move, this guy dies. So what he concluded was this. The only way to save his life would be to cut off his leg. So what he did is he reached down to his shoe and he pulled out a shoestring. And he somehow made this very crude tourniquet and tightened it with a wrench. Then he reaches into his pocket, pulls out a pocket knife. And just below the knee, he cuts. First through the skin, then the muscle, and then the bone. He's able to then drag himself out from under the tree. But the problem is a shoelace doesn't make a very good tourniquet, so his leg is bleeding profusely. He is bleeding out. Now he has to fight for his life. Story goes, he slowly drags himself along the ground to a bulldozer, which was about 30 meters away. He drives the bulldozer for about 400 meters to reach his truck. The problem is his truck was manual transmission. Now, for those who don't know, you need two legs to drive a manual vehicle. Somehow, using his free hand and his one leg, he was able to drive over two miles to a nearby farmhouse. From there, the farmer took him to hospital, and his life was saved. Some of you may have seen the film 127 Hours. It's basically the same thing. A rock climber was trapped in a canyon. You can see the picture. He's trapped in the canyon because a boulder has pinned his arm. He's stuck there for 127 hours, hence the title. Now, if you're doing the math, that's five days. In the end, he had to cut off his arm in order to survive. What's my point? A person will cut off a body part to save their life. What do you need to cut off to save your eternity? It's basically what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 18. I like the way theologian John Owen put it. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Every single one of us here is fighting something. There's no one here today that's not fighting something. It could be lust, anger, pride, selfishness, greed, unbelief. The list is endless. We are all fighting something. Now, I know this is heavy, so let me speak a word of comfort. Let me speak some grace. Making war on sin doesn't mean we win every battle. If you are losing some battles, that doesn't mean you're not committed to the fight. You are committed to the fight if you truly despise that sin that sometimes conquers you. You are committed to the fight if you will not allow sin to have the final say in your life. And by the grace of God and the power of His Spirit, you will make it out of life alive. Can I hear an amen? I saw some people taking deep breaths. It's... Let's bring this back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me read from verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You don't want to go there. You do not want to go there. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, 
and gentleness. That's a far better list. Now, there's so much I could say here, but let me just say this one thing. When Paul says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, he's not talking about Bill Gates and the uber wealthy. He's talking about those who simply have a desire to have more than they actually need. I see it, I want, I must have it. If that's you, then that root needs to be, needs to be cut out. Destroy that root, lest it destroy your eternity. If we could keep that other slide up, Anita. I just want to highlight the two verbs that Paul uses. Oh, the one before, no, the next one. There's two verbs, oh, actually not highlighted there. Okay. There's two verbs that Paul uses. He commands Timothy to flee and pursue. And when you think about it, they're actually completely opposite actions. Paul says, when faced with evil, flee. Think of Joseph in Potiphar's house. Run as far and fast, run as far away and fast as you can. Now let me give one practical example. Something that is plaguing our modern world. When you're sitting at your computer, or perhaps you're scrolling through your phone, when something catches your eye, I think you know what I'm talking about, okay? Do not click. Do not enter that page. Close it down, run away. This is not just a problem in the West. This is a problem in Africa. Internet pornography is killing our world. It is leaving a trail of victims in its wake. If that's you... Do not click. Flee. Run away as fast as you can. The second verb Paul uses is the word pursue. Flee the bad stuff. Pursue the good stuff. Now notice this. Both these verbs are active. You will not flee from sin or overcome it by being passive. The same as you will not produce holiness by being passive. You've got to be active. Think about Cristiano Ronaldo. I think we've got a picture. There he is. Isn't he handsome, ladies? Arguably one of the greatest footballers who's ever lived. Now, when I say football, I mean the game where you kick it with your head. Now, imagine if you thought, I can say that in Africa. I say football, I come here, people, it's AFL or rugby. Imagine if he thought to himself, I'm one of the greatest players of all time. God has naturally gifted me. I'm strong. I'm athletic. I know how to score goals. I don't need to train. And so all week he sits on his couch playing video games, drinking soda, and stuffing chips into his face. Would he be able to turn up on match day and maintain peak performance? The answer is no. And he knows it. And that's why at the age of 37, he's the first to arrive at training and the last to leave. And when he's not on the training track, he's in the gym. Okay, he doesn't miss leg day. My point is this. Excellence doesn't just happen. It is something that must be pursued. It takes discipline. If you want to grow spiritually, if you want to be all that God intends you to be, don't expect Christian virtues to fall out of the sky and into your lap. It's just not going to happen. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. 
No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Those last three words are crucial. Trained by it. Holiness will not come easy. Your flesh will not allow it. Satan will not allow it. But if we pursue it, then we can produce a harvest of righteousness. Having explained that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Paul then instructs Timothy with these final words. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Let me just pause for a second. When you read those words, understand that globally and historically, Paul's talking about most of us here today. Globally and historically, this is us. Command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that final phrase. Paul's already instructed Timothy to fight the good fight and take hold of the eternal life to which he was called. That's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for eternity. Here Paul says, he kind of repeats that instruction and says, you know, warn those who are tempted to put their trust in money. Instead, tell them to take hold of the life that is truly life. Think about what he's saying. He's saying that true life is not to be found in material comforts or or the pleasures that money can afford. You don't find life there. Now what I'm about to say next is, is not intended with any disrespect, so please hear my heart. I grew up in one of the poorest areas of Perth. I'm a a Girawain boy, if you know Perth. And I can honestly say I didn't come from a happy household. I remember a lot of fighting a lot of yelling. And I remember my dad, he had this belief that if he just wins lotto, then everything will be okay. All the problems will disappear. All the brokenness, all the dysfunction. He'd find life if we were rich. Can I tell you, it it, it doesn't work that way. There are matters of the soul that money cannot fix. In contrast, my mother worked for a lady who was rich. I mean, she was really, really rich. She doesn't have to worry about a single thing in life. Now, I don't know how to say this any other way, but she's one of the least happy people you will ever meet. So miserable and complaining all the time. You see, there's a void, and money cannot fill it. Wealth may bring external comfort, but it, it doesn't bring wholeness. In the end, her husband grew so tired of her, he divorced her, and for a a while, her children didn't even want to know her. Paul is saying, wealth is no guarantee of finding the life that is truly life. We have to fight against that temptation. There's an interesting story that comes out of the sinking of the Titanic. 
Now, for those who don't know, there were not nearly enough lifeboats to save everyone on board. The story goes that a wealthy woman from first class, she was one of the fortunate few who was given a seat in one of the boats. Now, understand, there was, a, there was chaos and panic. You know, everyone knows this ship is going down. They know their lives are at stake. And people, are, they're, they're fighting to get on those boats. And here's this woman, she's got her position, and suddenly she gets out of the boat and runs back to her room in first class. Sitting on the dresser is this, you know, really expensive piece of jewelry. Ignoring that, she instead grabs three oranges and races back to the boat. You see, at that moment, that jewelry had less value than those oranges. At that moment, that jewelry was less precious than those oranges. It was worthless. There was nothing it could do to save or preserve her life. Let me say this. When death is imminent, the prospect of eternity has a way of bringing clarity unlike anything else. Paul says to Timothy, warn those who are rich not to put their hope in wealth. When it comes to matters of your soul, when it comes to matters of eternity, wealth is no savior. Paul says instead, command them to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, eternity, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let me close with the story of William Borden. Born in 1887, he was actually the heir to the Borden family fortune. I think they did dairy and ice cream and that sort of stuff. He stood to inherit tens of millions of dollars. At the time, he would have been one of the richest men in America. He could have lived like a prince. Wealth, pleasure, prestige. When he graduated from high school, he, he took a gap year. What his parents did, they said, we will pay for you to go on a round-the-world trip. Nice gap year. During this trip, he developed a burden for the unrich people of Asia and the Middle East, and from that point on, his life took a very different path. At university, his rich friends were driving around in the latest automobiles, but he chose to, to walk. Secretly, he was giving away thousands of dollars to missions. One friend expressed surprise that he was, and I quote, throwing himself away as a missionary. In response, Borden wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. What he's saying is when it comes to the Great Commission, there is no substitutes bench. No one sits on the sidelines. We've all been called. At one point, his father was so concerned that he's wasting his life, he threatened to cut him off from the family fortune entirely. In response, Borden wrote another two words in the back of his Bible. No retreat. Having been called by Jesus, there was no turning back. Another friend wrote, no one would have known from Borden's life and talk that he was a millionaire, but no one could have helped knowing that he was a Christian. After graduating from both Yale University and Princeton Theological Seminary, Borden gave more than his finances. He gave his life. He felt a call to the Muslim Kansu people in northern China. Now, because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he first stopped in Cairo in Egypt to study Arabic. He'd only been there three months when he contracted uh, spinal meningitis. 
Within a month, 25-year-old William Borden, heir to one of the largest fortunes in America, was dead. His death was front-page news across the U.S. People questioned whether, has has this guy wasted his life? Think of all that he could have been. Think of all that he could have achieved. He could have been a captain of industry, a, a mover and shaker. And so the question is, how do you turn your back upon all that wealth? How do you sacrifice so much to seemingly gain so little? Let me tell you how. William Borden had an eternal perspective. He had taken hold of the life that is truly life. Consider these words from Jim Elliot, another missionary who made the ultimate sacrifice for Jesus. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This is why we fight the good fight. We gain what we cannot lose. And when we fight the good fight, when we finish the race, we find the life that is truly life. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you that we have been saved by your son Jesus. We've been called to belong to him. We've been called to serve him. Father, we thank you for this high and mighty call. But God, we know it's not easy following Jesus. At times we are so weak, but God, you've called us to fight the good fight. Father, we know we do so, that you, as we do so, you strengthen us. Father, I ask and pray for everyone here tonight. Whatever the struggle is, help them to stand firm. Help them to overcome and help them to honor and glorify you in their lives. Help them to serve you and to love you and to honor you. Father, we ask this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.